Thanks for listening to RQ's Device Love Podcast. You're about to listen to an audio only version of our weekly show, Device Love Live. If you're interested in having your questions answered live on a future episode, visit rqteam.com to see what topics are coming up and to register. We hope you enjoy this panel discussion, and if you do, please subscribe. All right, to start us off today, can you highlight the requirements for sufficient clinical evidence in the MDR and MDCG guidance? Ebem, you want to kick us off? Sure. So the requirement for clinical data has always been there in the medical device directive and now in the MDR. Indeed, folks will recall that the previous version of the MDD had 14 essential requirements. Essential requirement 14 was clinical data. That was then deleted, but then reincarnated as essential requirement 6A in the current version. So linking it more closely with risk management and also providing a pointer to an extent which goes deeper into the requirements of clinical data. In the MDR, Article 61 and Annex 14 Part A clearly talk to the requirements for sufficient clinical data. And indeed, the recent guidance document MDCG 2020-6 goes into much deeper extent. So there's no way you could possibly be on the market without adequately satisfying these requirements. John, do you have anything additional? Well, I would say that the requirements always been there, right? You always needed sufficient clinical evidence. Enforcement has increased over time. And so the requirements always kind of been the requirement, but enforcement is much greater now, especially for class three and implantable devices. They are really expecting a lot more clinical data. And I think the problem is, is that sufficient clinical evidence isn't necessarily defined, right? And I think people will be disappointed. It never really, I don't think, will be defined like as like literally as maybe people want. Um, but what they do say is the manufacturer needs to justify and specify basically the level of clinical evidence for their device. And it can basically be dependent on the risk level of the device. So you need a lot more data for class three and implantables. And the MDR specifically says you need clinical investigations for those. And then, and then there's some caveats. You could use equivalents or it might be a, you know, on a legacy device. Um, so you wouldn't need that preclinical investigation or pre-market investigation. And then um, you, you, the med dev talks about these things, right? 2.71 refer for clinical evaluation. It basically gave you two paths for demonstrating sufficient evidence. You could use clinical data for your device or use an equivalent device. And as we've talked about before, equivalence has really buttoned down a lot. And there's an MDCG guidance on equivalence now too. And one thing that's nice about that one is it basically talks about the contract being in place for class three and implantable. So you really need to use your own device, uh, but it does seem to open it up for lower risk devices that you can use another manufacturer's device, but the requirement to have sufficient access to that data is still there. So you have to look at those requirements and see if you have a good argument as far as whether or not you can use that. And I have seen a lot of times they push back a lot, especially on biocompatibility for other manufacturers device because you don't usually have material information on those. Mm -hmm. And it's really about the final material. So, um, so you have clinical data for your subject, your device or the equivalent device, then you can have clinical data 
is not deemed appropriate. And so a lot of people call that like the performance pathway. And that's basically arguing that for conformity assessment, you can use preclinical data. And that has to have a very specific justification for why you can do that. And then you, you outline why that testing and what your testing was performed to show that your device is doing what it's saying it's doing. And then sort of the MDCG kind of, I, I don't know if it's a new path, but it does allow, so notified bodies for sufficient evidence, we're really saying, show us the data for your device if you're using that clinical data route and or the equivalent device. And they weren't really considering other things, but now that MDCG guidance kind of introduces, I don't know if introduces the right word. They use the concept or expand on the concept of well-established technologies. They provide a definition for it. And they basically say that you can use cumulative evidence for these devices. And as part of that is using data for similar devices, which really wasn't considered by notified bodies before. And I know a lot of our clients are now going with that argument when it makes sense. And it has worked in some, uh, a couple instances that we've seen so far where they've been able to make that argument. Um, so you sort of have those, those paths. And the other thing that was a little bit unclear to me, at least when reading you know, you need to justify and specify the level of evidence. What did that really mean? Did you need to provide a sample size or did you need to say like, this is the type of studies needed? And what the note, what I've, MDCG-6 kind of says is it gives you this hierarchy of the level of evidence, which the best evidence being a manufacturer-sponsored clinical investigation with basically no gaps. And kind of the lowest level is bench testing. And so they kind of, and I think that's what they're talking about as far as level of evidence, like what kind of device do you have? What level of evidence do you need? You don't need a clinical investigation for a well-established instrument that's been on the market for 25 years, but you might need it for a class three device. So I think those are the things people need to consider. Great. That was very thorough. Does anybody Sorry. have anything else to add? That was perfect. <laughs> I think that covered it all. Anything else from anybody? Well, just that under the MDR now, we see where, in addition to safety and performance, there uh, there's language about benefits. You know, what are the clinical benefits mm -hmm. from using a particular device? And so, how do you how do you define those up front? How do you measure against them on the back end? So, um, that that's it, it was kind of always I don't know in, inferred maybe, but it, it's more clear now that you need to consider what the clinical benefits would be. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's amazing when we deal with so many clients, um, especially for devices that have been around for a long time, when when you ask that question, they're not quite sure how to how to define that because they never had to really um, formalize that. So it, it's another challenge. Okay, good point. Okay, next question. What are the best practices to fulfilling sufficient clinical evidence requirements that the notified bodies are accepting in audits? What kind of best practices are you seeing? What do you think, Gibbum? Okay, so in this regard, I think you've got to really think of it holistically. The totality of evidence that you need to gather. So that could start with the literature review, pertinent literature review, bench testing, <clears throat> maybe animal studies, okay, and maybe trying to leverage equivalence arguments, keeping in mind the caveats around claiming equivalence and uh, to the point John made, basically that hierarchy, making sure that you cover all bases, because it may not just be one piece of evidence, but the totality, essentially tell your story, 
and then determine why you believe when taken together, the sum total of the data will support whatever claims you wish to make. See, and to the point uh, Ron also made, what is in it for the, um, for the client? What are the benefits? Are you just doing it because it's in fashion? Are you doing it because of economic considerations? The authorities take a dim view of such an approach. So that kind of gives manufacturers things to consider in how best to, to kind of come up with this best practice approach. John, what do you think? Um, I think best practices is kind of a difficult thing to say, because I think it's what's the best strategy for your device specifically. Because most of the time when we're doing clinical evaluations, the client has the data that they have at this stage. And so the real question is, what do I do now? And so mm -hmm. I think what I've seen as far as the best practices, and this kind of ties back to what Ibum's saying is, you need to have an argument that makes sense and is cohesive. So it has to tie in to your indications and you have to basically clearly show how you're supporting those indications and as Ron mentioned, benefits. And so, and you have to be clear on the path. Are you using clinical data or are you not? Or are you using non-clinical data? And so clearly saying that that's the path I'm taking and then providing the appropriate justification. And so I think the best practices is really taking what data you have, coming up with a, the appropriate approach and always using kind of the, I call it the sniff test, that you make sure that it makes sense. Because if it doesn't make sense, I've noticed that the notified bodies really do push back and they really question you on that approach. And then I think from the, the post-market side, if you're already on the market under MDD and you know that maybe you don't have sufficient evidence right now or it's unclear, um, you definitely should start being considering doing some PMCF, especially if you have a high risk device. You wanna be collecting that data now so you can be pre prepared for MDR. So I think the best practices is really just doing a, a thorough assessment of your data, clearly showing how that supports your, your benefits, indications, claims, and then providing PMCF that makes sense as well. Celeste, what do you think? Um, I would I would agree with that. I also think that um, the manufacturer could try to use um, other forms of evidence, maybe um, to to bolster um, their data set, as John was mentioning. So maybe they could look to public databases for you know safety information, adverse events, and recalls. So it's definitely not going to be enough, but it could be supplemental and you know demonstrate um, the safety aspects. Ron, anything to add? Yeah, I mean, you know, when, when you go back to what everybody else said, you know, you have all this data, so you have to kind of kind of have to fill up all your buckets. So know which uh, data sources you have and then see which bucket has kind of the best, the most robust data. Mm -hmm. And then you build your strategy around that, whether it's equivalents or similar devices or well-established technologies or ideally, you know, having enough on your own device to get started. Um, there's a question in here. Let me see in the chat box. If you are relying on literature rather, if you're relying on a literature search rather than clinical investigation, why would you need the equivalent device to be made of the same material if you have already performed successful biocompatibility testing on your finished device? We ran into that at a client. <laughs> Go ahead, John. I, 
yeah, I, I agree with the question, <laughs> right? <laughs> and that was my initial thought is that why we do biocompatibility. We know this device, this uh, device is, I don't know if I sh the right term is biocompatible, but it has a successful history of use and doesn't have any biocompatibility issues. The problem is, is the MDR says it needs to be the same material in contact with the same materials and tissues or, or tissues uh, and body parts, essentially. So that's the requirement in the MDR. And we have seen notified bodies come back and say, they are not, it's like you have to think of the term equivalent. Like, so they look at it as it might be both are safe, but they're not equivalent. And so you cannot fulfill biological equivalence if they're different materials according to the MDR. Mm -hmm. And I'd look at that MDCG-5 to get more details. And so we've seen them push back a lot and say, well, they're different materials, so they're not equivalent. And so that's where you might, in those cases, maybe have to go back to similar, um, use it as a similar device or something to that effect. And the other reason is, is because you usually, if you, if you don't have all the, the manufacturing processes that were used for that device, they're really interested in the end materials. And so if they're not made of the same materials and using the same manufacturing processes, they might have different residuals or something and so in leachables. And so they're concerned about that as well. So Gosh. I guess I would think it makes sense that you could say they're equivalent, but based on the definition of biological equivalence, it doesn't necessarily meet it. If, if, I, if I could chime in there, Lisa and John. Mm -hmm. Yes, you may be using a material, say titanium alloy, that's approved for uh, implant, as implants, but how do you know manufacturer A and B are using the same processing agents? You know, so basically the requirement now is don't just stop at the material itself. Look at that final device. Make sure it's still biocompatible. Because I think there have been situations where people have thought, assumed everything was okay, without realizing that there may have been some residue that's going on to cause problems. So it's that kind of belt and whistles approach. Okay, sounds good. Here's, a, here's a, another question from the audience. Um, what is the caveat on clinical equivalence? Anybody? Um, I think just look to the MDCG-5, to be honest, with regard to all equivalence arguments under the MDR. And that provides details on what they're expecting with regard to equivalence. And I'd have to look to see like specifically for clin clinical equivalence, what they discuss, but it talks about, you know, issues with equivalence for clinical, technical, and biological. And mm -hmm. so just look to that guidance. Okay. Can a PMCF plan be used to fulfill the requirements? John? Uh, well, it could be used to fulfill the PMCF requirements, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, uh, one thing I see a lot of people getting confused on is the requirements for a clinical evaluation and the requirements for PMS and PMCF. They're really two separate things. And the clinical evaluation has certain requirements. And one purpose of the clinical evaluation is demonstrating conformity to the essential requirements of the GSPRs. And so you have to, have, and you have to have sufficient clinical data as we've been talking about. And so that you need to demonstrate that. And then PMCF is a separate sort of requirement that follows the clinical evaluation and basically 
looks at residual risks and other factors that you might be interested in following post-market. And so there are different requirements in your, your PMCF plan is obviously required, but your clinical evaluation has to have sufficient clinical evidence. And I think a lot of times people are trying to fill gaps. You, you can't really fill a, a significant gap in sufficient clinical evidence with PMCF. The only time it might work right now is in the transition when your device is already on the market. So you've been deemed to have sufficient clinical evidence. So now propose PMCF now and follow it up while it's on the market before you get to the MDR and need to actually provide that data. Yeah. And John, that would be a good strategy. There's a question coming through about a topical metal, medical device on the market for 10 years with no complaints or adverse events and do devices still need clinical data to get approval? So that would be a good strategy in that scenario is to uh, do, you know, PMCF now um, as to gather the evidence for the original, for the first submission and then to continue um, yeah, on that yeah. cycle. Well, in this case, that's where you would be making the well-established technology argument, right? So I think the thing is, is that unless you're taking the non-clinical data route, clinical data is always appropriate, right? And so you need it. It's just where are you going to source your clinical data from? Mm -hmm. And can you rely on non-clinical testing as well? And so with that well-established technology uh, aspect in the MDCG guidance says you can rely on accumulative evidence. So that could be literature data from your device and even similar devices could be preclinical testing on your device. It could be post-market surveillance data and it can be, you know, compliance to standards and things like that. So you're relying on a lot um, evidence from a bunch of different sources. But if you have a class three and implantable device uh, that's maybe not well established, then you're going to need a clinical investigation or some really high quality clinical literature on that device. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay, here's our, our next question. Um, can you touch on how the device's end of life cycle corresponds to the requirement to update the CER? More plainly, when is the last CER required? After the device is removed from the market or after the last lot has expired or after CE removal? What do you think? Who wants that one? Yeah, I can take that one. Um, so our our general rule at the notified body was that once you've notified, you know, the notified body, we're taking this, you know, off the market, meaning, you know, we're no longer making new product and selling it. Um, once you do that, you know, the, um, the tech file becomes kind of static. All right. So you're not going to make any more design changes. Um, what doesn't remain static is, is PMS and updating any, you know, risk as a result of that. So we always used to tell clients that, okay, um, you've done, you, you no longer have to update the CER. Um, or the tech file, but you still have to collect PMS data because these devices still may be used or maybe a complaint or an adverse event that you have to deal with. Okay, thanks, Ron. Here's another one from the audience. How are specific measurable safety and performance outcomes defined for general use devices? What are some specific examples? Anyone want to take that? Um, I guess... I'd have to have a specific example of a general use device, but let's so say a scalpel. Microscopes or <laughs> surgical tools for, it, yeah. for example. Sorry, should have read the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> Where is it at? It says, i.e., microscopes, surgical tools, et cetera. So I think the first question is, microscope, do you need clinical data? 
So I would say in that case, I would strongly consider them to look at the clinical data is not deemed appropriate route, especially if their indications are such that it doesn't say that you're going to use it to treat a specific medical condition. It's just the microscope that is used to support other devices. And so that's the first thing. Um, and then if you choose that route, definitely put appropriate justification and then all the testing that shows that you evaluated your device. And so it's performing as you're intending and it meets applicable standards. And then you still provide your PMC, PMS data and maybe even do literature searches just to, to do it as a PMS activity. Um, John, I, John yeah, go ahead. sorry, I'll, I'll differ with you in one aspect. Clinical data is required for every medical device. The question is, what information do you need to generate? Essential requirements one to six are applicable to every medical device. GSPRs one to eight are applicable to any medical device. So I guess the point you're making is you don't need to go do a clinical investigation or whatever, but some information from the literature, some testing, et cetera, may be appropriate in the case of a microscope. I, I think we differ a little bit on this, <laughs> the two of us, which is fine because it is a little confusing. But the way I interpret it is you have, there's a, a I don't know if exemption is the right word, but it has clinical data is not deemed appropriate to demonstrate conformity to the GSPRs or the essential requirements. And so what it's saying is there's certain instances where you do not need clinical data for one and six or one and eight. Right. That doesn't mean what I definitely agree with you is clinical data is always appropriate and you do need to re review clinical data um, for your device. And so absolutely, you need to consider uh, PMS data, which is clinical data. And then you also have to consider PMCF for your device or proactive PMS. Right. So clinical data, absolutely. You should always be looking at it for your device. It's just whether or not you try to use that um, clinical data not deemed appropriate route and it used to never be an issue i don't know what are your thoughts on that because that's most people never really made that argument because notified bodies were not enforcing this clinical data requirement as much but then you get into situations with a microscope where you're not going to have it and so you might be able to say for demonstration of conformity i'm going to use preclinical testing but then I still am collecting clinical data as a post-market activity. And also in the context of risk management in this sort of yeah. situation, you know, uh, no, no, I could tell you this now in all my time working for a notified body, clinical data was always applicable. It was always, what do you need to do? And that is where the device, the risk classification kicks in. Mm. Okay. We, we have lots of questions coming in today. <laughs> First, we're going to ask one that was sent in ahead. Um, I'll read this clearly because it's more complicated. Um, what are best practices or ideas for predicting occurrence rates when disclosing risk as EUMDR requires for new products that do not require clinical trials? Celeste, do you want to take okay. it? Okay, yeah. I think for that, definitely would have to get creative. Uh, so... Just to reframe a little bit, it's a new product that does not require, you're saying clinical data, and how do you set the occurrence of risk essentially? Mm -hmm. um, so I think like the first thing I would do is look at the um, harms associated with the device and do a clinical literature review to see if I can um, find any clinical literature that may have like 
a current as something I can, you know, back out occurrence rates. Um, if I wasn't able to find that data in clinical literature, I would probably turn to surveys or focus groups to understand the frequency of you know, adverse events or harms associated with the device. Um, but that would, you know, depend on knowing the user group. Um, so I would get data from one of those two avenues and then use that to set the occurrence rates um, in the risk management file and compare with my post-market surveillance data. Um, so if the, and over time, I think the intention of MDR is that you're always fine-tuning the risk management file and um, improving your accuracy and the benefit risk assessment. Um, so you really have a good understanding and handle on um, the, the risks and how those are being mitigated and the performance of the device in the field. Um, so I think those are the steps that could be used. Um, does anyone else have anything to add or questions on that? Nope, all good. Okay, <laughs> okay next one. Um, this is from the chat, so I can't put it on the screen. At what point would the notify bodies request clinical data for a well-established technology product? I, I think to Ibum's point, if you're not, if you're going with the clinical data route, they're always going to want clinical data. It's just what source, where you're sourcing it from. So if it's well-established technology, you can basically source it from um, similar devices. Now, then you get to the hierarchy of evidence and what you need. If it's a super low-risk device with no literature, even on similar devices, we run into this with surgical instruments, then where you want to get your clinical data, and I think Celeste might have mentioned this, is from international like databases like MDR or European databases where they look at any of the safety issues in MDRs and you basically look at how what their MDRs are for all devices or similar devices and how that compares to your complaints and your MDRs and your recalls and their recalls. So that's where you're sourcing clinical data for like the lowest risk that have no data. And then you would be basically using preclinical testing to say that, hey, this is our clinical data, and here's the preclinical testing showing that we're doing what we're saying we're doing. Okay. Absolutely, John, because nobody expects you, nobody in Europe is going to sign off a clinical trial protocol for a scalpel. You know what I mean? I mean, <laughs> that's a fact. So it's kind of using that risk proportionate approach whereby you are actually trying to generate information and then benchmarking it against the data you have for your device. I think if you were to do that, the notified bodies will be much more interested in your data versus saying, sorry, I have no data. That won't work. And I, I think in those instances, the other thing to note is when do you do literature searches? Right. If you know there's no literature, do you do the search or not? Or if you're going with, I don't need clinical data, do I do a literature search? Um, I've seen manufacturers basically say we're not doing it because, you know, we don't need to, or I forget the argument, right, that clinical data is not deemed appropriate. So we're not doing it. We always do the literature searches, even though it might produce zero results. And the reason we do that is because it basically proves that there's nothing. Instead of saying we don't expect to find anything, this shows that you didn't find anything. Um, I agree, John. I mean, it's best practice to do the literature survey. What you're doing is you're scouring the landscape to find out what information is there. And which is, which 
gives you more, if you may, argument, supports your case, when you have to uh, discuss it with an identified body, look, we've scoured the, uh, the landscape. This is our findings, good, bad, or indifferent. As opposed to saying, we're not doing it because we believe we don't need to do it. That, that will not work. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, the literature searches would call would come under, you know, what you call proactive PMS instead of just waiting for complaints. And, you know, you have to think about it. If you're, say, say you're not going to update your CER for two years because you have a good justification and that's fine. Um, you shouldn't be waiting until the that two year time frame to start doing a literature search and, and seeing, you know, anything that came up or or reacting to a some sort of an adverse event that you were made aware of. So you should be doing that kind of all along in the interim to keep collecting data because that may, you know, that may trigger you to update it even sooner if there's significant problems out there. Mm -hmm. Okay, next one from the chat box. Can you comment on whether active PMCF studies are needed for a device when it is no longer being sold but may still be in use? Yes. I, <laughs> I would argue yes. Because you're still gathering information about yeah. that device. You know, uh, what if it was an implantable device? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I so think what that the, what's ties the with Sorry. what Ron was saying before about CERs, like the technical file is somewhat static, but you're still doing post-market surveillance and PMCF mm -hmm. is kind of within that PM, the PMS surveillance bucket, right? So mm -hmm. I think it all ties in together mm -hmm. that you would need to continue doing it through the lifetime of the device. Yep. Next one, can you comment on the, on the differences in the levels of evidence required for class three implantable devices that are diagnostic versus therapeutic? I don't think there would be any. I don't, the, the regulations don't make a distinction between the level of evidence between those. And so it'll really be dependent on um, what the purpose of your device is and what, you know, what it's doing and what your claims are. And so that would be what requires your level of evidence, I think. Yeah, I think it's more going to be differences around the clinical outcomes of what you'd be looking for in your evidence than um, how you would um, need to have that supported. Yeah, and if you look at med, the, one of the appendices in the med dev, and it talks about benefits, that's one of the things it talks about, you know, what are the benefits of therapeutic devices versus diagnostic devices? And we've run into this with diagnostic devices. And so what we've reported there is sensitivity, specificity, and things to that effect, um, you know, showing that, you know, it's doing what it's saying it's doing. Mm -hmm. Okay. For a class 2A or 1S device where the CER relies on equivalence, must the equivalent device need to be CE certified as per MDR or MD or is MDD acceptable? I think what they're referring to in, uh, I'd have to go back and look at MDCG-5. And so maybe I'll, I'll give what I remember and maybe the person can go back and double check. But I think what they say is if it's class three and implantable and you're using equivalents, that equivalent device needs to be MDR, right? I don't think it has the same requirement for lower risk devices. So you could use for class 2A or 1R a equivalent device that is under the MDD. Okay. This is a tough one here. I can put it on the screen. What about substance-based medical devices with clinical 
data of a device based on the same functional ingredient, like same concentration and intended use, and different excipients, even substance-based excipient, be enough? Whoa. I think Celeste is the chemist here. She better. I have Celeste as well. <laughs> we'll give her a second. <laughs> so, I first of all. Um, I think it depends, like, uh, we would need to have more details on the intended use, yeah. and, like the biocompatibility. So um, if this is like an ingested device, there's going to be like some biocompatibility to support that aspect, but then clinical data is also going to be required. So I would think that we would need, um, first of all, biocompatibility of the finished product, and then also clinical data um, not just the functional ingredient, right? There's other guidances such as reach and, you know, it really depends what the excipients are, concentrations. Um, and, and I think I could see this being a part of a broader strategy in terms of clinical data. I think the one thing to note is that, and I don't know all the details about this specific instance, but you, you need a technical, you can have technical differences, uh, but you need to evaluate whether or not what their impact on safety and performance is. And so theoretically, it shouldn't have a significant impact on safety and performance. So what you're saying is, can I use this device as my own safety and performance data? And so that's what your equivalence evaluation for technical characteristics should be. So if this impacts safety and performance, then you might get a lot of pushback. If it truly doesn't impact safety and performance, then you may have a good argument. But what I would do is definitely put a good argument together saying, here's the differences, but this is exactly why it doesn't impact safety and performance. Or if it does, say what the impact is and how that can impact your evaluation of the clinical data. Yeah, that's a great way to say it, John, because that's exactly like where the differences with the excipients come in. So does it do you know, altering the excipients change anything about the safety or performance? And if the answer is yes, then definitely clinical data would be needed. Okay, next question. Can you give specific examples of acceptability criteria used to demonstrate the clinical benefit for a legacy device in the post-market setting? It's in the uh, chat box if you want to see it in writing. I can't put it on the screen. Yeah, I, I, well, I don't want to give away any specific clients, but uh, so <laughs> acceptability criteria. So let's say it's a hip replacement and typically hip replacements are to decrease pain and improve function. And then general safety and performance is based on revision rates. So what we've done in these instances and similar instances is basically say, look to registries, say, here's the revision rates for registries for similar devices. Here's the revision rate from registries for our device. Here's the revision rates. And let's say it's 90%, I think is a typical, now they're moving to maybe 95% at 10 years, not revision rates, uh, survival, but, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but so that's one that we've used and you set specific criteria based on the state of the art for revision rates. And then you compare your device against that. And we haven't had to necessarily say, we usually say compare, comparable or better and really just doing a top level, like what are, what's all the data say for ours? What's all the data say for similar devices? And then for pain, we would do something similar like that. But sometimes we use kind of a, um, a bunch of 
parameters for pain, or you could specifically say the vast pain score needs to decrease by two points and, or has to be comparable to similar devices. But, you know, so ODI is one we've used before too. So I would say for those ODI looks at function, vast looks at pain, and then the revision rate looks at general things. So it's really taking your benefit assigning a specific outcome parameter to it that you think is valuable and that you have data for, and then comparing it to similar devices. And so, and so John, are you saying like to do that, you know, for a, a specific device, look at what's the norm in that specific therapeutic area for clinical benefit, and then kind of use that to set the acceptability criteria? Yeah. Well, maybe in some therapeutic areas, there are, if you may, acceptable criteria. For instance, with HIPS, Harris HIPS score, how does uh, that comparable device compare with yours? That way, at least on an internationally acceptable scale, you can make those sort of comparisons and draw conclusions. Yeah. Okay, next. next question. How do we generate data during the COVID-19 pandemic when we'll get minimum or slow enrollment, or as someone said in the chat box, when it's almost unethical to expect people to enroll or to get enrollment during this COVID pandemic time. What do you think of them? Are we gonna get a pass or a delay? I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, not doing anything will not be acceptable. Having a robust plan and making a start will be acceptable. You can always negotiate with a notified body to say, look, we're planning to do this over six months, but because of uh, COVID-19, we're going to rearrange our schedule and collect the data over nine months or 12 months or whatever the case may be. I mean, COVID would not be here forever. Hopefully, things will continue to improve, and then you can accelerate your rate of data collection. What do you think, Ron? Yeah, that's that's a good start. And, you know, you have to work with your notified body, be in touch with your notified body, make sure they're aware of what your plan is or what a change in your plan is, you know, have a, have a you know, kind of a defined timeline. Um, you know, if, if you don't have a an extended MDD cert, um, I'm not sure you can still get one at this point, but if there's any possibility to extend that under MDD, um, that's always, that's always a request you can make. It, it may not be fulfilled, but uh, those are some of the things you might want to consider. Do you think it would be acceptable in that case to kind of set your PMCF in like a tiered approach, like because of COVID this first, you know, this first cycle, we're going to propose something, you know, more basic like survey or clinical literature search, focus groups, that kind of thing. And then show like a long-term plan of PMCF to get all the clinical data that's necessary to try and negotiate with the notified body, like, we, we know we need more clinical data, we're trying, um, but also, you know, within reason. Do you think that would I, be a possibility? I think, I think that's a good approach as well, because as I said before, doing nothing will not be acceptable. But if you have clearly defined milestone achievements, okay, you can go back and renegotiate them. At six months time point, we had indicated we're going to provide you with this kind of data. Well, with COVID, we can't now, but this is what we're going to be able to share with you at six months. And if you do that, and if it's reasonable, always, if you may, align with 
what you'd have originally agreed, I believe the notify bodies will, will take that into consideration and say yes. So John said previously that PMCF is not a substitute for clinical evidence, but in this case, can it be? Can there be some negotiation? But we're talking about generating PMCF in this case in the post-market phase, right? Yeah. So if it's in the post-market phase, then I think they will be very, very, they, they will be amenable to considering this uh, amendment to your plans. But what if we're in the pre-market phase? Well, you mean pre-market to MDR. To MDR. <laughs> your post-market MDD, your pre-market yes, MDR. Yes, exactly. Post-market MDD, yeah. pre-market MDR. We cannot get enough data in time because of COVID. Can we negotiate to use PMCF? I don't think you can can negotiate to use PMCF, but you can propose the same strategy to get the clinical data for MDR. It's going to depend on the robustness of the data you already have under MDD. Yeah, I think that depends on how desperate you are for data, right? <laughs> so if you have no data, you're class three and implantable, mm -hmm. um, and your plan was to get that data for your MDR submission, you know, so you're collecting it post-market under MDD, mm -hmm. um, you may want to consider other strategies for collecting that data, such as a survey or something, but even that might not be enough. So I think, it, it'll be an interesting situation. I don't think there's a clear answer to it, to be honest. Okay. Except to negotiate. To negotiate. Notify yeah, somebody. I think you should yeah. talk. Yeah, I think just communicating with them is probably the best mm -hmm. thing to do. So at least you're all on the same page. But they have to meet the requirements and they have to sign off and say, you have sufficient clinical evidence to be on the market uh, and meet the GSPRs or comply with the GSPRs. So mm -hmm. it's a tough situation. Okay, next question from the audience. What's been your experience in balancing between near-term and long-term efficacy endpoints in establishing the risk-benefit case? Splitting evidence generation across pre-market and post-market clinical evidence generation. Uh, for example, acute surrogate endpoints versus five-year disease-free survival. Who wants that wallop of a question? <laughs> well, it, I, you know, it, if you're comparing apples to apples, if you're comparing the same endpoint, um, you know, pre-market versus post-market, I think you would want to, you know, if you have five-year data at that point or beyond that, then that's going to be probably more valuable than what you maybe predicted in the pre-market phase, right? Um, but it sounds like um, it almost, this question almost sounds like they're comparing a different endpoint pre-market versus post-market. And I'm not sure how to best best address that one. Mm -hmm. And also it's about like how to split the evidence generation. So um, obviously the acute surrogate endpoint is a, a real-time collection um, and then a registry or a database, something like that could be used for the evidence generation for five-year disease-free survival. Um, so that's, I think, a another approach that you're going to have to be using different methods to collect this data. Okay, well, thanks, everybody. We are out of time. I just realized we were flooded with questions and still had more. So we'll have to have a part two of this session.